From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. The numbers are staggering. On average, Americans throw away 338 million pounds of produce. Not every year, but every day. Nearly 40% of American kids get most of their veggies from French fries, and over 5 million annual deaths worldwide can be traced to a lack of fresh produce. Can this continue? Well, not if Jose Andres has something to say about it. So yes, in a way, it's an homage to vegetables, but deep, deep underneath is used an homage to make sure that we respect the men and women that keeps feeding humanity. Chef Jose Andres is forever on a mission, whether it's serving three million meals following Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico or feeding those affected by the government shutdown. His latest crusade, to get us to eat our veggies. It's the subject of a new book called Vegetables Unleashed, written with Matt Golding. Hi, Jose. Hello, Evan. We're so happy to have you here. This new book, Vegetables Unleashed, is quite something. Well, I do believe that, uh, you know, vegetables, I think, finally are getting the respect they deserve. But when we are giving to vegetables the respect they deserve, I think we're giving the respect to the men and women that work in the fields in America and around the world to produce those vegetables to keep feeding humanity. So yes, in a way, it's an homage to vegetables, but deep, deep underneath is used an homage to make sure that we respect the men and women that keeps feeding humanity. Though your focus seems to have been toward your humanitarian work of late, you've obviously never stopped being a chef or running all your restaurants. Why did you think now was the best time to write another cookbook, and why do it with Matt Golding of Roads and Kingdoms? Well, Matt is a very good friend, and and the books I've written, uh, you know, is many great writers out there, and. But the previous one, Richard Wolf, right? Uh, the other two books I've written, he's one of my best friends. Uh, Matt Golding is one of my best friends. Uh, life is too short, and I like to spend the time with friends because in the process, you're not really writing a book, you're having fun. Uh, I'm working with my team, we're traveling. Uh, we're learning together, we're laughing together. And that's why, obviously, we did it with, uh, with Matt Golding. I really think that there's something in the book that's so much more powerful in the fact that his voice is not a ghost, that it's him watching you and then trying to channel you in his own descriptions. I think it makes the book so much more powerful. Well, I told him from the beginning that obviously he was um, writing the book, but that, uh, you know, he's a person that loves food so much, that knows so much about food. And he's such a good storyteller. Every time I read anything he writes, it makes me feel like I'm traveling, like I'm enjoying, I'm smelling. He helps me travel with him every time I read him. Offshore, he had to be just not the ghost writer, but an active part of the book. And he was, quite frankly, he worked very hard for this book, not only doing the writing and trying to follow me, but he was there giving ideas, eating, tasting, cooking, opinionated on the photos, opinionated. Um, unbelievable. Quite frankly, this book belongs more to Matt than even belongs to me. He worked so hard for this book. 
Food has become such a political statement and a class issue. I mean, it's always been, but we're more aware of it now because more writers are writing about these things. Can you talk about the unintended repercussions that come with being super conscious of where our food comes from and how it makes it to our tables? Today, somehow, in the way we were feeding humanity, sometimes we create unforeseen consequences in the way we are producing uh, meat, in the way we are producing fruits and vegetables, in the way we are using pesticides when there are no regulations. That yes, maybe the tomatoes are going to look great, but then our waterways are going to be polluted. It's so many things that food should be the answer to have a better planet, cleaner planet, where the workers are well paid, where we don't use undocumented immigrants to farm the lands of America so we can eat, but then we mistreat those people like it was a 21st century slavery that nobody even thinks about anymore. So as you see, the food production touches many things, how we are underpaying people and mistreating people in the way to produce them, and how we have people hungry in one side of the equation, and in the other side we are throwing food garbage every single day. Food, it's an opportunity, and we need to seize that opportunity to improve the way we feed America and the world, and in the process, create a better world. You call water the, quote, invisible hand of the culinary world, unquote, and you might be the only man who's able to make boiling water sound really fascinating. What is it about a boiled vegetable that makes it your favorite preparation? Well, listen, water is life. Water is who we are. And vegetables behave very well in water. They are what they are thanks to the dirt, but thanks to the water. And so I always saw my mom that she will always have the pot of water with some salt, and she will put the potatoes and then the green beans. And then she will take them out, and then in the same tray she will put some olive oil and some Spanish pimenton or paprika. Sometimes she will do some garlic with olive oil, and when the garlic was slightly golden, she will put that hot oil on top of the vegetables. And that was a very simple, humble plate of vegetables that I always loved. In my house today, my wife, we make the same for our children. So that's why I wanted to give, uh, in this moment that seems we're always pushing the envelope of complicated recipes, difficult recipes that sometimes people really don't have time for. Why we don't go back to the simple basics of put the pot of water, put some nice quality salt, and use boil the vegetables to perfection. Then put the sauce you like, grate some cheese, put some spice, some sesame seed, some tahini, make it from the part of the world you are. But just use the water used to give that beautiful punch to the vegetable. And believe me, it's the easiest way to feed a family. One dish that you really love and you cook all over the place using what's available to you is cocido, big pot cooking. Do you find yourself making cocido with less and less meat these days and just throwing in more and more vegetables? You'll see me in both sides of the equation. That I love vegetables doesn't mean that I'm totally escaping my love for meats. But the answer is yes, because the simple reason is the way my wife likes to feed my children, myself, and the guests we always have home, it's uh, using a lot of some of the vegetables we produce in a mini house farm we have outside in our lawn. And we always try during uh, spring and summer 
use every single vegetable that comes from there, from potatoes to the zucchini, the tomatoes, the corn, whatever we are growing. And we love to be using those vegetables. And sometimes I love to make this kind of cocido, which is kind of almost new, where, yes, we put some meats before, and then uh, in the last 30 minutes, 40 minutes, we fill it up with this massive quantity of vegetables. That then when it's done, we take the vegetables, then we take some of the meats out, and then we have these some two or three sauces, and then we reduce that stock, and then we add sometimes a little bit of miso. And all of the time, we serve that beautiful soup with all the vegetable flavor, and then we start eating the vegetables. Sometimes by, it's so many vegetables that by the time we get to the meats, nobody even wants to eat the meats. But more often than not, I've been making that dish only with vegetables sometimes, and I'm not going to lie to you. It's just simply delicious, and especially in the spring and summer when the bounty of vegetables use allows you to do anything you want. Can I ask you about your relationship with Irma Rombauer and the joy of cooking? Uh, well, Irma Rombauer, uh, to me, was obviously coming from Europe, you not know, somebody I knew. Slowly I began learning about the power and the influence of the joy of cooking, and I saw that super big, huge never-ending book of thousands of recipes and every single way to cook anything you wanted. And me, I was like, wow. And then when I began discovering when this book was written, and, and then, man, in, in early 30s, uh, 1931 or 33, if I remember right, and then I was able to get a first edition of The Joy of Cooking. And then happens that the book was, was much more humble in its ways, only very few recipes compared to what has become today. But there's still the same idea of giving different possibilities to different ingredients. Uh, in the joy of cooking, one recipe I always thought was amazing was those corn fritters. And I made them and it was so simple. It was one humble egg, a little bit of cornstarch, and just a lot of corn kernels of the fresh, beautiful summer corn. And I made those little fritters, and they were so delicious. It's sprinkled with some salt and cooked on olive oil. And I fell in love with that simple way, quick way, to make those corn fritters from the joy of cooking. And sometimes I just learned that even in books that don't come from the so-called professional chefs, in this case from a humble woman, that after her husband died, she put all her savings, because no publisher wanted to publish her book, into publishing this humble book, sharing with everybody the recipes she knew. To me, I think, was a beautiful story. And anyway, especially after I began cooking some of the recipes that she was giving in a very simple way, yeah, I, I became a fan of that book. And I think we, we are honoring her and that recipe in, in, this, in this book I, I just published. I know you're a cookbook junkie. Is there another title that you love? that you turn to for vegetable inspiration? Sometimes you don't really have to go to any uh, vegetable cookbook to find great vegetables for many authors, but I believe like uh, our great Alice Waters, she really did an amazing job on bringing vegetables forward, bringing local and seasonal before many, and I'm very proud to call her a friend, and I love to see what she was able to do. And also, I was very lucky to call another great woman, a friend, Nora Puyon. She closed her restaurant in Washington, D.C. But Nora Puyon, as much as Alice Waters became the super big name known on, on local and seasonal, and she deserves it, Nora Puyon technically became the first restaurant, maybe in the world, that became 100% organic 
And she was with me very important in taking me around Pennsylvania and Maryland and Virginia. And when I arrived in Washington and I was a young cook, she was the one that always pushed me to buy from local farmers, to go to visit the farmers. And that had a big influence on me. And since then, always, my restaurants, even we don't promote that we are local and seasonal and that we buy a lot from vegetables from local farmers. We've always support local farmers in many different ways. And thanks to them, we, my restaurants, I know they are better. So... We here in Southern California and across the country were about to be inundated with summer tomatoes. They're boundless in Spanish cuisine. How have you upped the ante of the simple tomato sandwich that you grew up eating as a child? Sometimes I come back from the market with the tomatoes and my daughters love to use the, the two slices of, uh, of bread and and use the slices of tomatoes, sometimes some green leaves, and sometimes mayonnaise. We love the mayo, touch of the mustard. Sometimes we make the pickle uh, onion in vinegar. And all of a sudden, that simple tomato sandwich becomes something sublime. I open a concept called beefsteak. Uh, we have some in D.C., one in Cleveland. Uh, we are uh, outside San Francisco at Google campus. So the concept is doing well. I hope we are going to be opening in the next few years hundreds. And this was an homage to vegetables. This was what a fast food with 99% of the menu vegetables will look like. So this was my challenge to try to have a successful fast food restaurant. And obviously we had not only to have the salads and the bowls that we make with vegetables that are cooked fresh in front of you, but we had to have a sandwich. We created, obviously, this sandwich on purpose. It's a very thick a slice of tomato, of a beefsteak tomato. And when you put it in your mouth, it's all these juices flowing through your mouth. It's almost like telling you, oh, my God, this is so good. And quite frankly, I, I love that it's so successful. Every time we put it on the menu, spring, summer, in the moment, the first good tomatoes show up. I love to see that people just come to have this sandwich. So I guess that mission accomplished. The other tomato recipe that is probably going to be the first thing I cook from your book is the tomato tartare. Yep. The tomato tartare, quite frankly, I think people are going to be super surprised. But when you see that sometimes with a humble tomato, even you can use a humble canned tomato, a good quality can, but canned. People should not be afraid of canned vegetables. There are good cans and bad cans, but when the cans are good, is one amazing way of preserving the goodness of the earth. So at the end, when you get the same flavors that you will put in your meat tartare and the same ingredients, and you are able just to use a tomato, and then when you put it in your mouth and you see that you have that kind of bite that almost resembles if you were eating a steak tartare, uh, at the end here, we're not really trying to cover meat if you don't eat meat. You shouldn't eat it, and that's it. And we shouldn't be faking vegetables looking like meats. But at the end, yes, it's a, a tomato tartare. has the flavors that we understand as a tartare. And I think uh, in my restaurant, this is uh, very popular in Bazaar. I think we have it in Las Vegas and in Bazaar in L.A. And it's super successful, and I hope when you cook it, you will enjoy it. So another recipe I want to ask you about, the berenjenas con miel, the eggplant with honey. It's very Spanish, right? Initially, it was no honey because honey was very expensive. So in the south of Spain, where, where it's super traditional in Andalusia, people will be using more a syrup that comes from the sugar cane, and that is 
you know, also brownish, like honey, but much cheaper. And traditionally, people will eat it with this kind of uh, sugar syrup, like a maple syrup made out of sugar cane. And that was very much the tradition. Obviously, when people had the money to afford the honey, honey will be obviously much better substitute. But uh, still in Spain today, you will find a lot of people that will serve it with that sugar cane syrup. Food waste is such an incredible problem in this country, all over the world, but for this country, really terrible. Could you share your methodology and your the recipe you make for compost potatoes? The compost potatoes, I've been already asked often what's going on with that one. But in my house, we live outside Washington, D.C., in beautiful uh, Maryland. And we have a little uh, a mini farm right in front of our house where my wife and my children, and especially myself, we like to be always uh, planting different vegetables. And so we are very active on cooking with vegetables, and we have a lot of uh, peels and, and leftovers from the vegetable world. So we always put them in what we call the compost bin. And then when it's full, we take it out and we do our own composting. And I use it year to year. And, and it's fascinating to see how you reduce the quantity of garbage bags you have to take out by only doing your own composting. I understand that not everybody has the room to do it. But when you have the opportunity, it's something I learned so much. And it's beautiful to see how compost smells so good. So sometimes those vegetables that are supposed to be going to the compost bin, and sometimes we put there the coffee grinds, and when we do juices through the juicer, and we have all the, the leftover of the carrots or the cabbage, whatever we are doing. You know, one day we were doing the potatoes with salt, different things, and I had the compost, and I'm like, and the coffee, I'm like, Man, why we don't cook the potatoes with the same compost on paper? They're going to be uh, later on together on the field. And so I got the I got the coffee grinds, and I think we had some corn leaves and leeks and onions and, and some uh, other vegetables. And then I put all those peels in the bottom and around the potatoes and the coffee grinds, and we baked them for one hour. And when I opened the oven, everything was so... Amazing, the smells of the coffee, of the corn, everything was used an amazing smell. The potatoes were roasted. Um, we began eating them with some butter and some cheese and mustard. Everybody began doing their own mixes, and they were delicious. So I thought, hey, let's put the recipe on the book. And this is another way people can be using the leftover vegetables to, in this case, bake potatoes. I think this is the secret to your life, that even though you have a very serious life doing a lot of serious things, you never stop playing. Your dedication in the book reads to our friend Anthony Bourdain, who spent his life planting seeds. Tell us a little bit about your friend, what you miss the most. You know, this is not only dedicated to him, but this is an Anthony Bourdain book. He had this imprint with Echo, the, the publisher. And previously, I did the other book about Puerto Rico. We fed an island. And also, Tony very much was behind it. He told me, what are you waiting for? So for me and Matt Golding doing this book, and especially after what happened, obviously, this was dedicated to Tony. Tony has been the voice of the voiceless. He's been a, a person that a person that showed all of us that we should not be afraid of the world, that we are all so much more equal than we think. And sometimes a plate of food, a beer, and a table and a smile is just what achieved that moment of magic. So obviously this book goes to Tony because Tony 
is the guy that always has been pushing every one of us just to be better, to do better. We miss him, but he's, he's with us. I know he's with us, and he's always going to be with us. Thank you, Jose. Gracias. That's Chef Jose Andres, founder and chairman of World Central Kitchen and co-founder of Think Food Group. He's received the Humanitarian of the Year Award from the James Beard Foulding. His new cookbook with Matt Goulding is Vegetables Unleashed. After the break, my conversation with Michael Pollan's family members who are all aboard the veggie revolution. Stay with us. Here Be Monsters is a podcast about, well, it's about a lot of things. It's about faith and doubt, love and loneliness, optimism and grief. It's a podcast about the things that frighten us and the things that we can't get out of our heads. Here Be Monsters, KCRW's podcast about the unknown. New episodes out now. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants, is Michael Pollan's famous advice for eating healthy, both for our own sake and the planet's. Now his family members have taken that to heart. I'm joined today by Lori Pollan, Michael's sister, and Corky Pollan, his mom. Everybody is embracing this flexitarian way of life. And even the first book, even though we didn't call it a flexitarian cookbook, it's sort of the way we eat, you know, very plant-centered and plant-based. Together with Michael's sisters, Tracy and Dana, they've written a book of recipes for a plant-intensive flexitarian diet. It's called Mostly Plants. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hello there. First, how are you two related to Michael? Well, this is Lori. Michael is my brother and Corky's son. And this is Corky. Yes, Michael is my son. You are the very proud mom. Yes. <laughs> so, Corky, as the matriarch of the family, tell us how you grew up eating in the 40s and how that informed what you cooked for your family once that you had children. Well, um, when I was growing up, um, a family of four, uh, we had very classic kind of dinners where a protein like uh, chicken, fish, beef would be the main portion of what was on our plate with vegetables and potatoes surrounding it. And in my household, since my father was in the produce business, we had um, other vegetables than what most people were having at that time. Instead of the carrots and the peas or the string beans, we had asparagus or artichokes and broccoli, which was kind of esoteric for that time. And when I, my kids were um, young, also four in the family, I sort of uh, duplicated what I grew up with when I was small. And when did things begin to change? As far as my eating habits, they began to change, I think, after my son's article in the New York Times about feed lot cows. <laughs> and I sort of... I uh, stopped eating a lot of beef at that time. So you kind of jumped on the Michael train. <laughs> exactly, even more so than he did. <laughs> he still eats uh, grass-fed beef, but I don't eat any beef at all. 
Did you become part of the Julia Child generation where you started cooking from that book to make your food a bit more complex? Well, I was, um, Julia Child's was like a Bible to me. But growing up, my mother really was an incredible cook. Uh, besides doing the usual Jewish fare, she did a lot of things with French accents. Uh, we usually had duck and um, sweetbreads and um, very sophisticated things for the time. I just imagine the Pollen family, that it must have been such an interesting journey for all of you as Michael continued researching over the years, and especially after Omnivore's Dilemma came out. This is Lori. Yeah, it was very interesting. He really opened our eyes to a lot of things. And we were also all starting to move in a similar direction at the same time. And I do think it came from Corky's influence because good food was such a part of our upbringing. We all sat down to dinner together and she would put on a really nice feast every night pretty much. So we were used to, you know, broccoli hollandaise and artichokes, vinaigrette and just, you know, Yorkshire pudding and roast beef. And I became a vegetarian and my sisters became a vegetarian at different times. And so we started to really embrace more and more plants and, you know, beans and um, whole grains. And so part of our transition went along at the same time as Michael's did. So when the Pollen family sits down for a meal or a, a celebration which involves food, how many different kinds of diets do you have to cater to? Uh, not much except for the vegetarian. Uh, two uh, daughters are vegetarians. But since um, I also don't eat much meat, it's really very easy. And uh, also as far as son-in-law's, uh, it's never a problem. Um, often if we all get together, it could be a great pasta with a fabulous salad, uh, something as simple as that, which is so great for a large group. I'll add to that that our husbands and children um, of all of us love, you know, the first book was uh, The Pollen Family Table and this one mostly plants, and they love being the guinea pigs. And so everybody is embracing this flexitarian way of life. And even the first book, even though we didn't call it a flexitarian cookbook, that's sort of the way we eat, you know, very plant-centered and plant-based. Um, so we try to come up with dishes that have a, a wide appeal to everybody. And we will do meat, but it'll sort of be the side thought often. So part of the um, the journey that we all go through when we start to eat in a more conscious way are all these labels that we have to navigate in the markets, for example, cage-free or free-range, and the fact that there isn't really a guarantee with any of those labels about humanely raised animals. What are you looking for when you're selecting dairy, produce, seafood, poultry, and meat? I usually go for the organic, although lately... There are some questions about organic milk. Um, but for me, it makes me feel better if I'm getting either organic eggs or organic milk. So I do look for those. If it's fruits and vegetables, I love to go to the local 
farmer's market to get things and also to get things that are in season. They're usually fresher, tastier, and so I go for those. And what about you, Lori? I'm so happy that meat isn't an issue for me <laughs> because um, I, you know, I actually, when my, my kids were younger and I did want to cook the meat just so that they could make their own choice, it was tended to always be as, you know, cattle um, that were grass-fed and humanely raised. And I think the humanely raised is a really key part for me. I also do try to buy local. I have a number of uh, farmer's markets, different days on the Upper West Side that I, I try to frequent. And I think we all follow the Dirty Dozen Clean 15 because sometimes it can be very expensive to buy everything organic. And if you make, you know, the best choices you can and, and make sure that that Dirty Dozen, whenever you can, you're buying the organic version, um, then you can feel a little bit more comfortable in your buying choice. Share with us a go-to recipe for a quick weeknight dinner. Ooh, we have a lot in the cookbook. We have a lot of pasta recipes that you can literally whip up in 30 minutes. And what we like about, in particular, the the um, mostly plants pasta recipes, you know, some people try to avoid eating too many carbs. They don't want simple carbs. And of course, there's wonderful pastas that are not simple carbs anymore. But in these recipes, we throw in so many greens and plants that it just changes the balance on your plate. And so I think those are great go-to weeknight recipes to eat. And there's a recipe for a zucchini cake that's called Grandma Mary's Glazed Zucchini Cake. Corky, was that your mom? Yes, that was my mom's. My father loved garden, so there was always an overflow of zucchini (laughs) that my mother had to deal with. And one of her ways of dealing with it was to turn it into this delicious zucchini bread. We call it a bread, but it's a little more like a cake, but just delicious. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to come talk to us. Thank Thank you. you. So great speaking with you. I've been talking with Lori and Corky Pollan, along with Tracy and Dana Pollan. They're the authors behind the new cookbook, Mostly Plants. Speaking of produce, many of you have been asking about the market report, which has been on a brief hiatus. Well, I am thrilled to say that we are back. And it returns with a familiar voice. Jillian Ferguson, who used to produce this show. Here she is reporting from the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. I am here in Santa Monica with Valerie Gordon, who is the Valerie of Valerie Confections. She and her partner, Stan, have two locations, almost three, in Los Angeles. Valerie, you have been, like, judging cakes on the Food Network... It's amazing that you make time to come all the way here to Santa Monica to shop. You know, I have to say this time of year is like a fantasy at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. It's so stimulating. It's kind of integral to come here. And I think particularly for people in the pastry sector, because so much of what we do is reliant on flowers and fruits. And this spring, summer is the transformative season. And so you got to be here. You got to do it. Yeah, and there are flowers everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. So what are you shopping for today? Today, well, in the last couple of weeks, I've embarked on sort of a redesign of our cake collection. And this is in anticipation of opening a large dessertery in Woodland Hills. And just sort of this 
a metamorphosis that I find happens within the creative process the longer that you own a company. Um, we're in our 15th year now, and I am a bit of a restless spirit, and I find that each year I kind of want to redo something a little bit. And this year I've really got my eyes on our cake collection, and we are going full throttle market inspiration on all of our cakes, and it's really, really exciting stuff. And these are your layered cakes, right? These are layered cakes. and. I want to say it was in like 2009 or 2010, I started doing this cake called a fallen fruit cake. And it really was an object of imperfection, each one having almost like a personality of its own. And it really is just like this full coverage of fruit. Then we, we've gone from that to doing like these cake corsages where we do these fresh flowers sort of arrangements on top of cakes. And this year I feel like I'm really marrying the two. Okay. And I'm creating sort of like these still lifes on top of cakes. Last week we shot this gorgeous citrus cake and it was just so happy. We got little flowers from Coleman uh -huh. where I love to get small edible flowers. Uh -huh. We got larger flowers from Peds and Barnett who do those gorgeous, mm -hmm. enormous, sort of almost prehistoric looking yeah, flowers. Yeah, I think they're the Proteas. Yeah, they're insane. Mm -hmm. So we got both of those and then all different levels of citrus from kumquats to mandarin quats to huge half slices of blood orange. And it's a really satisfying thing to build and to consume oh, because yeah. everything on top of there is either edible or savable. So what flower, how do you know mm -hmm. if you can eat a flower or not when you find it on top of your cake? I find that the very small ones, you know, they're sort of those obvious things like borage is edible. Mm -hmm. I think that anything that looks like it's very uncomfortable to bite, you probably shouldn't bite. You probably shouldn't put in your mouth, <laughs> right? Uh, roses we use a lot of as well. Mm -hmm. Probably our most popular product that we sell year-round is our rose petal pedophore, and that has a hand-candied rose petal, and we do thousands of these every month. Wow. Yeah. And how, how do you candy a rose petal? It's sort of like you're preserving the rose petal with sugar and egg white. So they have to be trimmed generally to fit the pedophore and we do ship the pedophores all over the country as well as sell them locally. So they have to be coated in egg white very carefully, run through thin sugar, and then they sit out until they're petrified. And that's a preserving action. So we do that with both pansies and rose petals. Mm -hmm. And you know we do things like lavender cake, we do rose petal ganache, we use a lot of florals within jams that then go into ganaches that then go into chocolates. So I've always really appreciated just sort of the flavor, the natural flavors that come from the flowers that we find here at the market. Well, the cakes are beautiful, Valerie. Thank you so much for coming all the way here to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Couldn't miss it. Thrilled to be here. <laughs> that was Valerie Gordon of Valerie Confections. She has shops in historic Filipino town, Echo Park, and soon to be Woodland Hills later this summer. You can also find her cakes at ValerieConfections.com. I'm talking now with Barbara Spencer of Windrose Farms up in Paso Robles. And Barbara, you always have one of the most beautiful booths at the market. Right now, it looks like a super bloom. Tell us about the edible flowers that you are growing right now. We love growing things that also flower as well. It's kind of like a double duty thing. It was funny because years ago, we would say, oh, we can't grow this and this and this because they go to flower too fast. And that was before we realized that when the flowers on a lot of the greens and the edibles are actually produced 
when they bolt. Their flowering is part of their seasonal, just the whole thing they do through the year. So you'll have mustards that are flowers that come off the Asian greens that as it comes to spring and warmer will bloom out faster. And it's a wonderful thing to get a twofer. You get, you get the leaf for a while and then you pick the blooms after a while. So we have things that are actually off the greens, and then we have flowers off herbs as well. Right. So did the chefs start asking you, you know, say, we want the flowers, bring the flowers to the market? I don't know where the cycle started. I think it may have been we probably, some of the time we cut things just because we had them and may have needed to fill the table. And so we started cutting them then, and we found out then, okay, there is a definite purpose for having them bloom out like that. Yeah, and they do make the table look very beautiful as well. Yeah, so you have, um, as well as the flowering spigarello, the broccoli, the mustards, you also have some rose geranium, you have chamomile. Talk about how to use some of those flowers that aren't from vegetables but are just more herbal. The herbal one's probably one of the more blanket uses. There's kind of like two categories. I think there's, what are you going to do is you're going to decorate with them, as a a garnish or something like that. You can make a simple syrup out of them and you can also dry them, use them for tea or use them for tea as a fresh. And when um, people are using them to make simple syrups, are you using the purple flowers or are you using the leaves? The leaves, leaves. primarily the leaves. Yeah, one of the things in using just plain simple syrups or one thing can be used with the syrups is ice cream. Sweet Rose has made scented geranium, rose geranium ice cream, and they would either swirl it with either pistachio or a raspberry swirl was really good in it. That was fabulous. And then um, Tartine also makes a tea cake, I think predominantly in the spring, that uses the geranium flowers somewhere mixed in either through a syrup or something, and it's just... It's like a lemon poppy seed with just a hint of the rose for the geranium, and it's just incredibly good. Wow, delicious. Well, your stand looks absolutely beautiful this time of year. How much longer are you going to have the flowers for? (laughs) Probably just a few more weeks, but other things will come in. Other flowers will come in. Sage is mostly done of the regular culinary sage, but we want to hope that it rotates into different ones all the time because it does make it really fun to set up the table. It really does. Yeah. Well, the stand is beautiful. Everyone is walking out of the market right now with bunches (laughs) under their arms sticking out of their baskets. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) That was Barbara Spencer. She and her husband, Bill, have Windrose Farms up in Paso Robles. She's at the Wednesday Santa Monica Farmer's Market only. Is that right? That's right. So you have to come to Santa Monica on Wednesdays and see what she has to offer. For The Market Report, this is Jillian Ferguson. Many thanks to Jillian Ferguson for this week's Market Report. After the break, we turn to California's Michelin Guide now that the stars have been awarded. Stick around for a breakdown of the results. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. You could not design a city more uniquely unsuited for Michelin style of of ranking and reviewing. And and it's, it's almost, I mean... Their methodology is really opaque. A decade ago, Michelin came to Los Angeles with a skinny standalone guide. It didn't go well. It's hard to imagine a more extreme cultural divide. When the Michelin Guide announced its return to Los Angeles this year for the first time in nearly a decade, the news was met with a mixture of excitement and a little skepticism. Now that the stars have been awarded, we invited Time Out LA's Restaurants and Bars editor, Stephanie Brejo, 
and Los Angeles Magazine food editor Garrett Snyder for a breakdown of rankings, the highlights, and the snubs. Hello. Hello. Hi. Did the two of you read Bill Addison's article about the, the guide? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I think he he put it well that it was a combination of celebration and condescension. Sure. I mean, in general, there's a sense of, well, we're back in L.A., but, you know, we're going to start you off slow. Like, you can work up to it. You know, there was you know, no three-star restaurants, um, which I think it's rare that a city that Michelin returns to gives three stars off the bat. But there's a sense of, well, we gave you two stars. Let's see you again in a year and see if you can earn three stars. So it's a <laughs> bit of a challenge, which, I mean, yeah, of course, reeks of condescension. But, you know, you think about Providence. That's had two stars for a yeah. while. Yeah. You would think they would have been primed. Yes, I, I think that that's true. And I think there are a lot of people out there saying that Providence should be should be thrilled that they've retained. Uh, you know, Spago lost its stars. There are obviously, you know, losses year to year. But I think that anyone who was really pulling for Los Angeles and expectant of this Michelin Guide to understand L.A. and to uh, really do us justice, which I don't even feel that they did maybe the last time they were here a decade ago. I think a lot of us were shocked that Providence only remained at two. And of course, there's something condescending about that. And, you know, obviously there was something condescending in the words about Los Angeles given in that interview so long ago when Michelin pulled out saying that, you know, we're not a real foodie city, that the people in L.A. don't really know how to dine. Yeah, of course, it's a, a mixed bag. And it's it's kind of fascinating because if you take a snapshot of L.A. dining then 10 years ago and now, what a change, what a yeah. growth, what so energetic and representative of so much that's plugged into actual modern life. And so I think that there was some hope that Michelin would, you know, leave the white tablecloth aside and recognize that it's possible to have a star restaurant without that tablecloth. Yet it appears, you know, they stay true to form. Taco Maria earned one star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And San Gabriel Valley's Bistro Nas, yet no Korean, Filipino, or Thai restaurants starred. Do you think that the inspectors come from here? Oh, almost <laughs> certainly not. Uh, well, I, from what I understand is that they have some inspectors that are, are local, and I guess they're kind of on the, the fringes of the system. So they were, they're like the initial scouting wave. And then if there's a, a restaurant that's seen as having potential for a star, it's like you fly in the crew from, you know, from Paris and they, they hit the pavement. But, yeah, I mean, even trying to kind of make sense of the, the Bib Gourmand list, like trying to figure out, okay, that's a good restaurant, but what's the logic? You know, and, and I think trying to wrap our head around how it breaks down is, is so, it, it, it's so maddening. So let's explain the rankings. Yes. So there are the stars, yes. which mean... What? Well, so, I mean, the origins of, of Michelin being sponsored and run by a tire company, a French <laughs> tire company, is originally it was how far out of your way should you go to a restaurant if you were, you know, driving in your automobile in the <laughs> 1900s. Um, and the idea is that the three stars is this is... Worth l- a detour. Wor- no, uh, its own special trip. Mm-hmm. I think I think one or, or two might be worth a detour, but basically gradients of that. How far should you travel? And then below that... I think in the 50s, they added uh, Bib Gourmand, which is, you know, highlighting value and 
And um, I don't know if they still attach to a price point to it, but it used to be $40 for an entree and an appetizer and a glass of something. And then recently they added plates, I think a year ago, which is an even broader, like, vague approval thumbs up. It's, yeah, and I think chefs really, for the most part, truly pay attention to the stars. That's definitely what people aim for. I mean, chefs are so competitive. Sure. And there's a certain subset of chefs that strive for absolute perfection, Mm -hmm. for whom stars are the ultimate validation. And so I'm thrilled for the people in L.A., for whom that is a validation because it's more than getting outside validation. It's more butts in the seats. Yeah, yeah. And I think if it helps grow that segment of of fine dining in L.A. and it it gives more opportunities for chefs to do ambitious high-end cuisine, then maybe that's a good thing. But I would also say I'm kind of of two minds because I don't think... Michelin missing out on the pleasure of a Morisco's Jalisco taco or a bowl of boat noodle soup at Sap Sap Coffee Shop. I don't think it lessens how great that is, right? Awarding stars to high-end restaurants and missing out doesn't lessen the ability of, of people to go and enjoy that. But the other token, there's a huge amount of capital that goes in that surrounds the Michelin stars. So, And that determines where that money goes. So if you look about are we, you know, is Michelin and the way it's run and the, and the problematic ways it assigns stars to mostly European-style restaurants, prioritizes a certain style of service, a certain style of food, is that dictating how the restaurant economy forms? You know, I think a restaurant like Porridge and Puss, which I love, I would love to see investors who have millions of dollars and follow the star system realize that, wow, Min Fan is doing amazing cooking. Maybe I'm going to give her a, a giant palatial restaurant to, <laughs> to do a $300 tasting menu. I would love to see that. By having their very narrow focus, they're kind of shutting out a lot of people who might benefit from that attention and those resources that get poured in. So that's my only regret because I, I do think a lot of chefs that were highlighted, are, you know, they're really worthy of that award and it means a lot to them. And I don't think it's necessary to kind of degrade that accomplishment. We should also say that it's it was a statewide guide, so it was California. 18 restaurants in L.A. received one star from the 69 total one stars in the entire state, which is pretty impressive showing. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any institutions that, in your opinion, were denied acknowledgement in that category in one star? I think that, first off, Dialogue deserved more than two stars. Uh, I was I was sort of shocked by that, but... I was surprised not to see Keith Baca make the list. I feel like that's, you know, if Cut is on there, which is a fabulous steakhouse, how can Keith Baca not get recognized in that same category at that same level? For me, the biggest shock was Lakshan. Yeah. Yeah. That Lakshan was put into Bib Gourmand. That just seems so off to me. Other noticeable star emissions included like Bavel, Bestia, Felix, and Republique. Yeah, and Major Domo, which I was, yeah. I was oh, shocked. That's, yeah. um, I think they were in a rough position because they were trying to prove to L.A. that they had done their due diligence. Yeah. But at the same time, everyone who's in L.A. and who is familiar with the dining scene in L.A. is aware that they absolutely did not <laughs> on a lot of levels. I mean, they if you look at even just the neighborhoods that uh, when the Bib Gourmand list came out, Santa Monica is listed as Santa Monica Bay, which is where we are recording <laughs> from right now. Uh, Koreatown doesn't exist. It's lumped into Greater Downtown, which is very bizarre. I mean, what even is Greater Downtown? It just, 
there are so many signals that they that maybe they're not from here at all, maybe that no, none of them were, but it seems like they were trying with the sort of the bib gourmands and especially with the plates that they were showing us that they maybe, you know, they get L.A., they understand it, they put some tacos in there, but it comes down to whether or not we really want to listen to them because I think we already know that we don't necessarily believe that they put in that work. And so when we look at these one-star ratings, or these two-star ratings, or these lack of three-star ratings, and we look at, say, San Francisco or New York, where they have Michelin-starred Mexican restaurants, and yet there were none here, it's I think that we all just have to take it with a grain of salt. We should say who the, the two stars are. Six of the 14 two-star restaurants for the whole state come out of L.A., so that's a great thing. And Naka, very happy for her. Providence, Somni, of course, Sushi, Ginza, Onodera, Urasawa, and Vespertine. I was really stoked to see Vespertine get two stars because I think it maybe encourages chefs to maybe feel comfortable in, in doing something as out there as Jordan Kahn. Dave Chang talked about it in one of his podcasts where he said, you know, two stars is almost a challenge, right? It's like, it's daring you to, to strive for three. So, you know, Nikki and Carol at in Naka and then Somni, obviously, Vespertine. There's all this pressure now to say, well, can you get three, you know? Yeah, but the stuff you have to do to get three... It really is expensive. Yeah, and it's deliberate. You have to say, we want to become three. We're going to make these changes to fit this I hope rubric. they don't do it. I hope they embrace life. Sure, yeah. I mean, <laughs> enjoy it. Like, you should celebrate. You shouldn't, yeah. I think that that's one of the things that I am concerned about regarding Michelin's return is that, you know, you mentioned there's a tremendous growth period in Los Angeles dining in the last decade. And there might not be an exact correlation, but how much of that is due to the fact that our chefs weren't trying to hold themselves to this certain standard of French cuisine of, of you know, set your tables this far apart from each other, this white tablecloth experience. Now that it's back, I worry that maybe not even just the chefs who are trying to strive for three and are maybe not going to enjoy life, as you said, I'm worried that it might shape the way Los Angeles dines. Not saying that most of our chefs would fall prey to that, but I do wonder in our sort of fine dining tiers how much we're going to see people cooking for the sake of stars. Oh, I hope I hope I, not. I mean, oh I gosh. do think that there is a segment of the dining population that the people who can afford to spend $1,000 for dinner. I mean, there definitely is an audience in Los Angeles for a few of those places who are striving. But I think amongst the rest of us, <laughs> the greater yeah. unwashed diners... <laughs> yeah. I think that there's still going to be plenty for us. Yeah, and that's the best thing about Los Angeles is it, it can contain multitudes and have contradictions and still be be fine and continue to, you know, have it all. Garrett and Stephanie, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for you. having us. Thanks so much. That's LA Magazine food editor Garrett Snyder and Stephanie Brejo, restaurants and bars editor of Time Out LA. We've been talking about the Michelin Guides California edition. After the break, LA Times restaurant critic Patricia Scarsaga talks with me about one of the local treasures that the Michelin Guide overlooked. Stick around. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Finally, we close out our show with a review from the LA Times restaurant critic Patricia Scarsaga. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you back. Let's talk about Sonora Town. Oh, let's talk about Sonora Town. 
I can talk about Sonortown all the time. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> I loved your review. Your review was really like a homegirl embracing. <sighs> yeah. I spent part of my adolescence and adulthood in Arizona, and I ate a lot around the Arizona-Sonora border, and I've become just a huge fan of Sonoran cooking over the years. So when I first walked into Sonora Town, I immediately felt like I was home. So what is the base of most of the dishes there that informs everything? Yes, so definitely the heart of the kitchen there belongs to the tortilla de harina, the flour tortilla, which they go to great lengths to make one of the best flour tortillas you'll find in Los Angeles. And let's talk about those great lengths. But first, <laughs> who's behind Sonora Town? Yeah, so we've got a really great young, energetic couple behind the restaurant. It's Jennifer Feltham and Teodoro Diaz Rodriguez. And he's actually a native of Sonora. So he, I think it was his idea to bring the flavors of his hometown, San Luis Rio Colorado, which is right on the other side of the Arizona border next to Yuma. They decided that I think Los Angeles needed a little piece of San Luis Rio Colorado, and they brought it to downtown Los Angeles. So let's talk about that tortilla, which we should mention won the golden tortilla at last year's first Gustavo's Tortilla Tournament. Yes, and if you go into Sonora Town, you'll notice that they proudly have their golden tortilla displayed <laughs> on the wall. I love that so much. So given that flour tortillas are made from wheat flour, do they just go and buy wheat flour from anywhere that anybody else might buy wheat flour in this town? No, they don't. You know, they could try to come up with some shortcuts, but instead they go through what Jennifer described to me, which really made me smile. She said, quote, it's the dumbest supply chain imaginable. They travel to the Arizona-Sonora border once a month sometimes twice a month, depending on how fast they go through the sacks of flour, so they can specifically use a brand of flour that is produced in uh, Tio's hometown of San Luis Rio Colorado. They use harina bonfil, which is a soft Sonoran wheat flour. And according to Jennifer, they experimented with all kinds of flours, and they just couldn't get the right consistency using American flour. It came out too cakey, came out too thick, but using the Sonoran flour made all the difference to get that very distinct kind of thin, buttery texture that their tortillas have become known for. So incredible. And what are they tucking into those tortillas? They are tucking delicious, uh, lavish amounts of mesquite charcoal grilled beef. <laughs> so I say the emblematic dish at Sonora Town is just the short rib taco. They couldn't find the right cut of steak in the U.S. They use a different cut in northern Mexico called agujas. And so instead they're doing short ribs and they're grilling them over mesquite charcoal, which is you know, very, very typical of this region of Mexico. The meat has this really distinctive smoky char essence to it. They're also using chorizo that's made locally by El Choriman, which is a special blend that he's devised for them. They're also doing a lot of like cheese, you know, obviously you have like guisados. They do a really great chivichanga with shredded chicken and shredded beef. So they're working with a lot of stuff in a really tiny kitchen. Really tiny kitchen. I mean, it's quite amazing that they're able to pump it out like they do. What would be your ideal order at Sonora Town? Um, you definitely need to do the steak taco there. You need to have anything that uses those 
really delicious flour tortillas. I think the chivichangas are a must order. I love the shredded chicken one. I didn't talk about it much in the review, but I really want to shout out their bean and cheese burrito. <laughs> We've all had really disappointing bean and cheese burritos in our lives. And this one is great. The pinto beans, it's not refried all the way, just the right amount of cheese. And then, of course, it really benefits from the tortilla. And then give us an idea of the condiments that go on top of like, for example, the steak taco? Pretty much everything has a guacamole salsa on it. They have a lovely salsa roja. Nothing too spicy. Everything comes with a grilled onion on the side, which is something you see a lot in like Tucson. You see it a lot in northern Mexico. If you want a little bit more spice, they do have chiltepin on hand, which is this really lovely, bright, spicy wild chili that grows in Sonora. Where is Sonora Town? We haven't mentioned that so far. It's in the Fashion District in downtown L.A. Parking can be a little bit of a headache, but it's definitely worth the effort. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you, Evan. I've been talking with L.A. Times restaurant critic Patricia Scarsiga about Sonora Town in downtown L.A., the winner of Gustavo's Tortilla Tournament last year. Visit the Good Food website for a link to her L.A. Times review. That's kcrw.com slash goodfood. That's it for our show this week. If you missed any of it, please listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You can always subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And as always, leave us a review if you liked what you heard. My thanks go to the Good Food team. They are Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joel Stein, Joseph Stone, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Amy Ta, Kenny Ng, Paola Mardo, and Laura Kondorajan. I'm Evan Kleiman, and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode of Good Food.